TED Audio Collective. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. I don't even really like the phrase self-help, but I do think that people need help. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 14 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Jocelyn K. Glide talks about how the internet can lead to burnout. That's what's so problematic about the digital space is it assumes like an infinite capacity. Here's Debbie. I'd like to thank two of the patrons that help make design matters possible. Is your team designing an app from scratch? Rethinking the look and feel of your brand? Maybe taking on something massive like transforming your brand's entire customer journey? Well, don't do it the old way, passing numberless one-off comps through endless emails. Instead, do it all in one place. Do it in Adobe XD. Now, for free, with the new starter plan. Adobe XD combines the ability to both design, prototype, and share in a single solution. Its combination of creativity and productivity lets your teams eliminate bottlenecks and simplify workflows. They can now create an interactive prototype and then share it with teammates and reviewers in a single place. It keeps up with today's creative demands by letting your team work when and where they want across Windows, iOS, the web, and more. Adobe XD has helped big brands change the way they create and review prototypes at a large scale. So don't do it the old way. Use Adobe XD, the design platform for the future, available today for free. For more information, visit xd.adobe.com today. Wix.com puts the creative power of building dynamic websites back into the hands of designers. As anyone who has spent time in a WYSIWYG platform knows, what you see isn't necessarily always what you get. On the flip side, for some, it's far too easy to get lost in code and lose the forest for the trees. 
Wix.com allows you to find your own personal sweet spot and take control of your site with their drag-and-drop editor, hundreds of advanced design features such as retina-ready image galleries, custom font sets, HD video and parallax scrolling effects, and even serverless, hassle-free coding for robust websites and applications. With Wix.com, you have total control of your web design like never before. So join Wix's brilliant community of designers, artists, and creatives at large around the world for free and ask yourself, what will you create today? According to Jocelyn K. Gly, we are living in an age of distraction. Email, social media, and the ever-quickening news cycle are taking a huge toll on our productivity, our creativity, even on our happiness. But we are not helpless here. Jocelyn's books and articles, her podcast, and a new online class aim to show us the light at the end of our digital tunnels and lead us back out into the open air. Jocelyn K. Gly, welcome to Design Matters. Thanks for having me, Debbie. Jocelyn, several years ago, you did a Reddit Ask Me Anything, and in it, you offered to share what you would do if you found yourself confronted by 100 duck-sized horses. I was shocked no one took you up on it. So let's find out here and now, what would you do if you found yourself confronted by 100 duck-sized horses? Well, that's not the opening question I was expecting. I think I would. <laughs> we always like to keep our guests on their toes here at Design Matters. Um, I think I would just lay down on the ground and really embrace that wave of duck-sized horses. Now, are duck-sized horses ponies? I mean... I don't know. I mean, normal <laughs> ponies are a different size, but it actually reminds me, I was on um, the beach one time at the Cape, you know, it was in the summer, and all of a sudden, this, like, little army of Jack Russell Terriers appeared without an owner. They were shepherded by a large greyhound, like, no human in sight, and there were, like, four of them, and they were, like, eight weeks old, and they just ran up to me on my beach towel, and I was like... Am I in heaven? Like, what is this? Did you abscond with them all? Did you take them home with you in your bag? <laughs> we just kind of, you know, we were together for a little while, and then their owner was, you know, distant half mile down the beach, emerged. But that immediately, I had a vision of that of that moment of kind of pure joy. So I think I'd be into it. As a fellow podcaster, what were you anticipating? My first question was going to be. Well, knowing your podcast, I was definitely anticipating having something that I said quoted back at me, which I'm sure is yet to happen. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Buckle up. <laughs> well, given how motivated and seemingly on top of the game you are today, I think some people would be surprised to learn that growing up you had a Peter Pan syndrome. You never thought about what you wanted to be when you grew up because you were too busy climbing trees. You really never wanted to grow up. Why is that? I think I remember my childhood and particularly my early childhood. I think, you know, from when I was a little kid until I was maybe five, I lived in Virginia, um, and we were pretty rural Virginia, so outside of our house, there was like this huge hill down into all of these, 
you know, beautiful woods. It was kind of a different time then in terms of the freedom that you could have as a child. You know, there wasn't all of this technology and cell phones. Of course, tiny children don't have cell phones anyways, but also— Some do. (laughs) But also you didn't get the sort of um, news of what had— you know, the, sort of all the horrible things that were happening to people all over the world. And so you should have been much more sheltered, right? I was just kind of running around and very carefree, I think. And, um, you know, I think as we get older, a lot of that carefreeness tends to fall away. And to, to go back to that technology thing I was touching on earlier, I was having a long conversation with a friend the other day kind of about that. Like, can you, as a parent or even as a child, have that kind of carefreeness anymore. Since we're discussing your early sense of play in the outdoors and uh, random animals sort of crossing your path, I'm wondering if you could tell us about a defining moment in your early life, a time when a stag you came across one day as a child, and what happened when that, when you encountered that stag? Well, so that was in Virginia. Um, when I was, you know, running around in the woods, as one often does, and was was by myself. Um, I think that's the other thing is that, you know, just being able to, I was thinking recently, someone prompted me to do this meditation that was um, about childhood memories. And I was thinking, oh, so many of my memories, I was alone, but not in a bad way, you know, but just kind of alone walking around the woods or, you know, playing on the front porch, something like that. But um, one of them, I was heading back, I think I was headed back from hanging out with my neighbor friend, Brad Adams. I think I was five. So, you know, I'm not very big now. I was a little, little person. Um, and, yeah, I just, I don't know, I was strolling along, and there was just this huge, you know, stag that was enormous, you know, antlers and everything. And it was just like this amazing, majestic moment. But I was also really scared, you know, and as a just the sheer size of something like that, you know. But, yeah, it's just one of those kind of little, like, special moments, you know, from your childhood that really stays with you. Just kind of the majesty of nature. And also when you experience the majesty of nature, I think quite often, I mean, I literally was very small at that time, but it makes you feel small in, like, a good way, you know? Yes, yes. Your mom was a teacher, but you've said that if she had grown up in your generation, she would have been an artist given her drawing and painting skills. Can you tell us a bit about her sketchbooks and the impact they had on you? Yeah, well, so she had these sketchbooks that she used to keep under her bed. And, you know, when you're a kid, you'd love to, like, go get into someone's stuff if you can, you know. Yes. And so All I don't know. All the forbidden things under the bed. <laughs> right. Your mom had sketchbooks. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to tell you what my mom had. <laughs> Very racy. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if she showed them to me or I just found them later. But um, she was really good at, um, at drawing people, drawing their faces, which is actually, you know, quite difficult, like sort of one of the, I've always felt like one of the more difficult aspects of drawing is capturing someone's face. And I don't know why, but I used to just like go in there and, you know, pull them out from under the bed and just kind of look at them. And I think also it was, maybe it was interesting to me because it allowed me to see sort of a different side of her because she's from a different generation. And at that time, you know, there just wasn't the, um, all of the resources that we have now to build, you know, a career or a business around our creativity um, in some way. I think she had wanted to go to 
art school, but her and my father got married fairly young, not for then, but, you know, I think she was like 21 and then ended up pursuing a career in teaching instead. But it always kind of felt like there was this sort of artistic soul about her, and that was always something that she wanted to pursue. And, you know, she still does in her in her free time, and I think she she really passed that kind of visual art gene onto my brother. I got more of the more of the writing gene than the uh, the hand eye coordination. Well, I have good hand eye coordination for sports, but not for <laughs> not for art. <laughs> Meanwhile, you said that your dad, a nuclear engineer, was extremely Type A, an overachiever, intensely driven and motivated, and. Given these attributes of your parents, um, it seems like you're a, a really good example of the perfect Venn diagram of, of Mr. and Mrs. Gly and how Jocelyn popped out. Would you agree? Maybe so. I mean, yeah, I've never, I've never thought about it that way, but I think that's absolutely true. I think so much of the work that I do now is really, sometimes I would call myself like a recovering type A, you know, is about kind of recognizing that. I have been in this very, like, overachieving, ambitious, perfectionist mindset and trying to figure out how to turn down the volume on that and be able to be a little bit more grounded and a little bit more present because all of that stuff, right, kind of takes you out of the present moment and into the future, right, super future-focused. And that's always a part of me. Like, you can't get you can't just get rid of it, but, you know, trying to find the balance. I want to stay in the past for a few more minutes. Um, in one interview I read, you described two key moments in your life that seemingly couldn't be more opposite. Um, seeing the stag in the rural woods of Lynchburg, Virginia, and then the day your family got their first computer. Bring us back to that moment. I mean, it was, I think I was about 15, maybe. You when were a teenager, we, for sure. Yeah, yeah, I got our first computer. I don't remember exactly what happened on that day, but... What I ended up doing was making a zine with it. And that was back when it was like really crappy clip art, you know, type Ransom of thing. Ransom notes kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I got really into it. And, um, you know, so I used to design, I designed the zine and I don't know what it was. Like, What was the name of it? It was called Crisp. Good and name. I had a matching T-shirt with like the masthead on it with like a drawing of a woman smoking a cigarette that I stole from my brother while I was digging around in his stuff secretly. <laughs> um, and so I used to wear my T-shirt. I would make the zine. And, I mean, I had, like, a little crew of, like, writers at my school. And, you know, it was, like, essays and poetry and, like, music reviews, all the classic, like, teen zine stuff. And then I would go— So this is really a precursor to the 99U magazine that you made. Sure. <laughs> it, yeah. it really is. You had a staff yeah. of students working for you. This is incredible. Yeah. Um, no, it's pretty funny because—so I, I would— Print it out, and then I would. Go, my dad would take me to work, and I would make copies of it. And then we would. My parents helped me. We would like staple them together. And then I would wear my little shirt, and I would like pass them out at school. And then I had a good friend actually, and we had a falling out. And then he started a warring zine. What <laughs> was the name of that? I think it was called. Burnt. I think it was called <laughs> Spitting Image. Actually, <gasps> ooh, look at these naming <laughs> skills. And then he tried to steal some of my writers. It's very 90210, <laughs> Lynchburg, Virginia. <laughs> no, no, no. This was, uh, by this time, I was living outside of um, Houston, Texas, and Clear Lake, where NASA is. Now, what were you hoping to do at that point in your life? What were you envisioning your future might be? What did you want to be as you got older? Mm. I don't know. I mean, I think always, 
you know, I've been a voracious reader since, I don't know, you know, since I learned how to read, basically. Um, I read every night before bed, generally speaking, and I've done that since I was probably nine or ten. So reading, writing, and then obviously kind of the zine, publishing has like always sort of been in the mix. And I think as I've gotten older, it's really not even so much about writing per se as just like disseminating ideas, you know, thinking about things and digesting them and then trying to sort of disseminate ideas and I think really just give people some more context that provides some sort of comfort to them. After high school, you went to Boston University, where you studied French and American literature and screenwriting. You graduated in 1999. Were you planning on becoming a filmmaker? I definitely did and still do um, have screenwriting ambitions. Um, I have, ever since then, been writing screenplays on the side, as I've done everything else. That program, I actually, like, snuck into... So I was an undergrad, but I somehow, like, finagled my way into the MFA screenwriting program. So I was able to do— How does one finagle their way into a different program? I don't—well, it wasn't different. It was just, like—so I just got to take the main writing class. Like, the actual MFA students had to do all this other stuff. But so I just took the two—it was, like, two years of one-year-long writing class. So you write a feature film, and then you write a feature adaptation. And— I was in this weird honors program that's a bit like the Gallatin program at NYU where you got to kind of design your own major. So I think, I don't know, I talked to, you know, the head of the program and I was like, I really want to take this screenwriting class. Like, what do you think? And then I talked to the professor and I don't know, maybe I smooth talked to him or something like that. But anyway, yeah, that's been an ongoing theme for me. So I literally have like notebooks and notebooks of screenplays and um I am working right now actually on a short film with a friend of mine who um, is also the person who shot the videos for this course that I um, just opened registration for. And we have been good friends and sort of talking about working on various film projects for years and years and years. So, yeah. You interned at MIT Press. And from what I understand, that impacted your view of the then current state of publishing. Is that correct? Well, so I worked at two different places at MIT. I worked at the MIT Press in, like, a very junior role. And at that time, they actually had um, some of the best book design that was happening. I don't know if you remember kind of that period. Was that during the time Muriel Cooper was there? Probably. I wasn't old enough to, like, know anyone's name of who was doing the cool stuff, but I would imagine so. Um, And, like, zone books and some stuff like that. But so I was there, and then I actually worked at this separate office called the Publishing Services Bureau, which was, you'll actually find really interesting. It was an office that was specifically set up to um, help all of the different departments of MIT, like, unify their branding because people were doing, like, completely, you know, terrible and ugly and mismatching stuff. And so it was this sort of, like, special design ops, (laughs) you know, type of unit. But that led to my first job at an interactive web design firm, um, which kind of led me, you know, into the online space. And that that place that I worked at, this small, that was when it was called interactive design back in the day, that was actually in this place in Maynard, Massachusetts, this old mill outside of Boston where a lot of the pre-dot-bomb companies like Monster.com had set up shop. And so we were working in this space 
And um, I got laid off, actually, when the dot bomb happened. And in this space, like, all these companies were going under, and you just started to see, like, discarded office furniture and the hallways and stuff. And it got kind of grim. But so that really got me into the the sort of online space, which was pretty, I think, um, formative. After you were laid off, you moved to New York City, where you began volunteering for the cultural website Flavor Pill in its early days. Now, from what I understand, volunteering means you were working for free. Um, How did you find them, and what did you think about working there for free? Well, so that I found them through, it was my previous boss at this interactive design firm. Um, You know, she was like, we're still really close friends. You know, she didn't sort of like want to lay me off. They like cried when they laid me off. And anyway, so we stayed in touch and she was like, oh, I know this, I get this email newsletter, Flavor Pill, it's awesome. Like, you should check it out. And I was trying, I was doing like freelance copywriting and, you know, stuff of that nature and just kind of trying to figure out what I was doing in New York. So I think I just got in touch with them, and they were like, yeah, we could use some help. And, I mean, it was just these two guys, um, and it was just like a very improvisational, I think, kind of at that point. Yes, I mean, I was volunteering like a couple of hours for free. It wasn't like, you know, slave labor or something like that. But then eventually evolved into um, me being their first full-time employee. And and for people who don't have context, Flavor Pill um, still exists. And at that time, it was kind of part of this sort of like – new rise of email newsletters. Um, that was also at the time that, like, Daily Candy was really popular. And so this kind of idea. Cool hunting and Exactly. Yeah. That kind of wave of disseminating information. And they were kind of like a super curated sort of, like, you know, timeout type of, like, cultural listings. After that experience, I understand you went west to work for a music website. But things didn't go exactly as planned. And you said this about the experience. After five years, I got offered a job in L.A. to make a not-so-cool music website really cool. I was offered more salary than I'd ever made. It sounded like a great plan, but it turned out not to be what I had anticipated. What went wrong? Well, so I had been working at Flavor Pill for, I think, about five years then. And so it had gone from one employee, me, to about 30. I think I was managing a team of like 25 people. You were the global editor by the time you left. I was the global editor. It was quite a title. You know, it was one of those things where you're kind of like, I think I've done everything I can do here and it's time to move on. And the CEO of this company, Artist Direct at the time, which was a sprawling music website, but like very like not good looking, you know, kind of like, I love what you've done with Flavor Pill. You know, I want to overhaul this website. And I was like, great. And I think because of the film connection, I was like, moving to L.A., like, I'm kind of into it. Like, let's check it out. But what happened was that, you know, the rest of the the crew was, like, not on board with the CEO's plan to overhaul the site. You know, it was just one of those situations. And it was, like, a very corporate—it wasn't big, but it was a very corporate-feeling company. And then the guy—the one guy I was working for who wasn't directly this—wasn't the CEO, I think quit two months after I got there or something. The guy who I— did like. And so it was just one of those things where, you know, you kind of get one presentation of what's going to happen and then you get in there and you're like, oh, this is completely different. But it was great because I was only there for 10 months and then I ended up quitting and I ended up moving back to New York because I was very lonely in LA and I was also in a relationship with someone in New York. But I'm really glad that I did it because I learned a couple of things which were one that 
I didn't like working in a corporate environment, that I really liked working in, you know, either on my own or in a startup environment, like environments where you have a lot of autonomy and a lot of freedom to just, you know, make stuff and put it out there. Um, and no one's trying to kind of like, you don't have to check your decisions through a, you know, big chain of people. And also that doing work that was meaningful to me was so much more important than making money. And it wasn't even like that much money that I was making there. It was just like more money than I'd ever made before. So, you know, those two pieces of information, I was about 30 at the time. That was incredibly valuable to have just learned that. And, you know, 10 months isn't a very long time to like learn this very important lesson about, you know, that kind of guides the rest of your career. So I think it's definitely a failure on one level, but I mean, that's what's great about failing is it's very informational. Especially when you're young. I left my very first job, which I actually liked a great deal, um, but was intimidated by the people that were better than me. Uh, I was making very little money. It was really hard to live. I got a job, and this is back in the early 80s, for $10,000 more than I was making, which is essentially doubling my salary. And it wasn't a good job. It was good money for me. But I knew even before I got there that I'd made a mistake. And I remember the last day at my that, that first job. And I remember going home, back to my apartment, my fourth floor tenement walk-up, going into my bedroom, getting into my bed fully clothed, pulling the blankets over my head and crying because I knew that I'd made a bad decision. And I had. And it was a year of being miserable in this job that I hated. There is something to be said for a balance between making enough money to survive and having some semblance of happiness with whatever it is you're doing. Um, but you don't learn that till later. You came back to New York and met Scott Belsky. Tell us, you hit it off right off the bat. Scott was putting together this uh, site called Behance. And t take us back to that experience. Take us back to the beginnings of this sort of John Lennon, Paul McCartney-esque type relationship. <laughs> Um, well, when I met Scott, it would have been 2008. Behance was well underway at that point. I think it was founded in 2006. And I had met Scott because I was actually helping. I was back in New York and I was like doing some editorial consulting, you know, again, kind of like, okay, figuring out my next move type of a thing. And a friend of mine had asked me to interview Scott. Um, and so I took him up on it and, and we really hit it off. And, um, some stuff happened in between, but cut to a couple months later, and it turned out that Scott had gotten the book deal for his first book, Making Ideas Happen. And I was, at the time, guess what, working on a screenplay. And I was like, oh, I'm having trouble finishing this screenplay. Like, maybe if I work on this book with this guy about, like, making ideas happen, I'll, like, learn some stuff that's going to help me finish this. I had, at that point, you know, a, a sort of extensive background in editing and, um, and publishing as well. And so Scott is like here, like CEO of a startup that's eating up all of his time, but he also like has to, um, you know, get together this book manuscript and, and do it for the first time. And, and part of it was a lot of interviews. So he asked me to kind of come on um, sort of a like kind of like a showrunner, you know, um, helping him like coordinate the interviews and, you know, just sounding board, like kind of first line of defense editor to like keep him on track. The book came out, it did great. And we were kind of like, okay, what are we going to like we really like working together. Like, what's going to happen now? And before we got to that point, I think the book released in April of 2009, um, Behance had the first 99U conference, 
which was, and it was actually called 99%. Right. And tell tell us why. (laughs) It was based on the Thomas Edison quote, genius is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. And it was really about kind of pushing back on this idea. Um, You know, there was tons of kind of information and conferences and talks around creativity, but they were all really focused on inspiration, right? And the idea was, you know what, like having ideas is not the hard part, (laughs) you know, following through. Ideas are easy. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Following through on those ideas is like the thing that we all struggle with, right? And so the conference was really about that idea. Like, let's get people to talk about the hard stuff. Let's get them to talk about the like nitty gritty stuff that they don't usually talk about, not this sort of pat story of overnight success. And so I attended the first conference and I did some sessions with Scott, which were around like the book and stuff like that. It was originally um, put together by Jerry Chow, who later started the Feast Conference, and Michael Carnjanaperkorn, who later founded Skillshare. Michael was at Behance and Jerry was like doing her own thing, but came on just for the conference. Anyway, long story short, Michael ended up um, moving on from Behance soon after that. But the conference had really resonated with people. And me and Scott were kind of wrapping up our book project. And so I was consulting with them editorially because we decided basically that we wanted to spin 99U off into like a larger brand, basically. And so the, the percentage went to you for university. Oh, well, there, that's later. I'll tell you that oh, in a minute. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm jumping ahead. But yeah, so we decided, um, you know, to kind of spin it out into a larger brand. There was actually this thing called the Behance Magazine, which was inside Behance, which was sort of this nascent almost 99U. But so anyway, um, Michael ended up leaving, and then we were developing this bigger project, and Scott was like, do you want to come on and lead it? And so, you know, basically I came on to lead the website as we built the website into this, um, you know, resource, interviews, articles, tips, later the videos from the conference, um, and then the conference, um, and then later, you know, book series that I did. And the switch to 99U actually happened, it would have been... um, I'm not sure what year it was. Was it 2010 or 2011? It was when Occupy Wall Street happened. And so basically, our brand got occupied. <laughs> we were literally, we had these giant 90, uh, you know, nine, nine and a percent that we used to put on stage at the conference. We were literally like packing them up to carry them to go to the conference, which we would have in like April or May or, of each year. And we had an office on Broadway in Soho <laughs> at that time. And there was actually an Occupy Wall Street March that happened. So we're like carrying our 99%. There's literally people on the street below chanting, we are the 99%. And it was like, okay, we have a branding problem. (laughs) Like we're going to have to do something about this. Um, And so then later it became 99U because it was kind of like, well, this is, you know, it's it's sort of been taken away from us. This is this is the people's brand now. Now, is it true that when you realized you were working for a how-to website, you became horrified? <laughs> well, not how-to. It was at a certain point I was like, oh my God, I, I run a self-help website. <laughs> you know, but then the the immediate next thought was, but it helps people. <laughs> so there's no way for me to say that I'm not in the sort of self-help space, so to speak, but I really strongly sort of don't identify with the mood of a lot of everything in the realm of self-help. I don't even really like the phrase self-help, but I do think that people need help. <laughs> it's interesting because it's self-help, but it's not help that you're you're providing yourself. You're getting it from someone else. It doesn't really work as a term. Precise, precisely. But I think I, my problem with the space is that the thing that's so messed up about so much of the self-help 
advice that we read and that we just sort of soak up all around us is that it makes you feel bad about yourself. It doesn't make you feel good about yourself. It makes you feel like you're not doing enough. It makes you feel like you have to work harder. You have to you could be optimizing your productivity ah, words, yes. system, you know, or you should be hustling or side hustling. You should not be even side- enough to hustle during the day. Now you have to side hustle. Exactly. And you know, all this stuff, it's very like it is very this like aggressive, this type A, this overachieving type of mentality. And it just it creates a lot of anxiety, right? It doesn't help it doesn't help you feel better about anything. It just makes you feel worse about yourself. And I really um you know, don't want to create anything that does that, you know. So it's it's really about kind of trying to provide stuff that's useful to people, but that has a very different, I think, mood and flavor to it. So there you are. You are running the conference and the magazine and the website, and you're writing best-selling books and spearheading all sorts of brilliance. And this is what you have written. I was intoxicated with my own productivity. I got wildly ambitious and decided to three times my workload, adding multiple massive new projects of my own devising to an already intensive work schedule. By the end of that year, I had produced a shit ton of incredible things, but I was a burnt out husk of a person. You'd get home from work, have a beer, order food, then watch Netflix. Repeat, you were neglecting your girlfriend and your friends. Jocelyn, my question is this. How did you make this realization that you were burnt out and needed to do something about it? When you're in that mode of overproduction, it's incredibly hard to see anything objectively. Well, so to give a little backstory on that, so that was 2013, and I was at 99U, and we were at the point where there were a couple things happening. We had decided to expand the conference, so we took it from about 400 people to the Time Center to about 1,000 people at Lincoln Center. So, you know, more than double the size, huge venue, et cetera, et cetera. And then also that year, I decided to add on another event, which was this thing called the Pop-Up School, which was this really fun three-day event, but that we produced on twice as fast as the conference on half the budget. And then that was also the year that I began publishing this book series that I made. And we actually published two of the books in the first six months, one book to coincide with the first conference, and then the second book to coincide with the pop-up school. And you've published books before, so you know that, you know, just publishing a book alone is like a huge push. So anyway, all these things are happening. And I think as the, um, it was about two weeks out from the second book publishing and, and doing this other event. And I remember calling my brother on the phone and I think I just started, I think I just started weeping. And if you're in this overworked state, sometimes you cry, I think, just like for release. It's not because like anything's particularly upsetting or maybe you're anxious, but it's literally just a form of release in the same way that laughter is. And he was like, what, how can I help you? And I was like, send me a package. I just want to get like something good in the mail. And so he sent me this package. It was one of the most beautiful things I've ever received. It had this image that he had made. Um, So my brother's an artist and it was this little postcard well, he hadn't made the image. It was a printout of um, this image from Zabriskie Point, the Antonioni movie, the one in the desert where the pickup truck is on fire and there's this huge, like, plume of smoke. And then there's this sort of, like, you know, kind of hot woman with, like, long hair just, like, standing, like, looking at the blaze. Then on the back it said, it was a little note from him, and it said, I've uh, created this machine. It's like a new art project. And um, what happens is you, like, feed in some information about you, and then it feeds out an image that, like, is your future. 
And like, this is the image I got. Wow. And then he gave me a deck of tarot cards. And I was like looking at that and I was like, I really, I think I do want to set everything on fire. Like, that sounds like a really good idea. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so I think, you know, kind of having that like moment where you're like, wow, I could just like, I could just light all this on fire and it would feel really good. It's kind of like, "Mm, what is that? (laughs) What does that mean? Um, Well, what did it mean? Because you did try to cut back. I did try to cut back, but I want to finish one part of the story, which is funny, which is that I was also like, and sh- what's who's this woman with long hair? And at this time, I had very short hair, which now we are. Five years later, I have long hair, and I think I think I lit it all on fire. So it was you. <laughs> but um, you have a good brother. <laughs> I do have a good brother. So what changed? Was that the yeah? What ch- well, well, you cut back a bit. You didn't. Mm-hmm. You didn't cut back everything right away. You didn't just burn it down. I didn't just burn it down. No. Um, I mean, a couple of things happened. That was also the year. Um, so at the end of that year, um, Behance was acquired by Adobe, um, which is, of course, you know, a significantly larger company um, that works at a very different pace. Um, and Behance really like maintained its kind of autonomy in the startup culture, but you know, it was sort of a and also an opportunity to slow down a little bit. I just said, like, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to take on this level of things anymore. And also, you know, this this book series and stuff, like, I'd already gotten through this kind of wave or at least most of a wave of, like, things that I had um, that I had committed to. You know, it's not about getting rid of things. It's about examining how many things you're saying yes to and how many things you're taking on. Um, and I ended up staying at Behance for, I was probably there for maybe a year and a half after that or so. Um, but then I ended up leaving and just kind of, you know, finally sort of going out on my own, not going to another job. And I think that period was really when I sort of began like kind of reflecting and thinking about, okay, like how am I going to rebuild myself and my life and my career in a way that is going to be, um, you know, essentially more sustainable. I'm not going to get to this state in the future where I'm like, oh, I got to light everything on fire. You wrote this about the six months after you first began trying to slow down. For six months after I slowed down, I woke up with a strange buzzing sensation, my body thrumming with energy, stuck in a rhythm after years of overwork. My body was continuing to release the excess amount of adrenaline that I had previously needed to get through the day. It became clear that I needed to do more than just work less. I had to rehabilitate my mind and body and shed years of bullshit and bad habits. So it took you 30 months to get over this, at which point you went to an acupuncturist, you saw a therapist, a trainer, a life coach, a shaman, a Reiki healer. From all the things that you did to try to get back to yourself, can you identify one that you feel was the most crucial? Yeah, well, so I I went to see the shaman, it was 2014, and... um, I went on an ayahuasca journey, but just in like a one-on-one setting. And this was a little bit before it's become increasingly popular. Michael Pollan wrote, Um, you know, a best-selling book about it. That'll do it, right? But so it was a little bit more like, what am I getting into, you know, at that that point? Because I didn't know. There was one person who I had met who had recommended this person to me and said, okay, this is a good person. Like, I had great experience. You know, go do this. I went to see her, and the interesting thing was, you know, many people go on journeys. Many people have different experiences. Some people have visions. You know, some people go flying through space. My experience was that 
Afterwards, I didn't have any anxiety. For about three weeks, it was just like... What is that like? I, it's amazing. I can't even it's, imagine. It's absolutely incredible. And what, And so it came back. I'd like to have an anxiety-free hour. Right? It's, it's amazing. And so it came back eventually, three weeks later-ish. But what was so transformative about that experience was that it just allowed me to recognize that the anxiety was something separate from me, that it wasn't part of my identity. Like, I thought that I was an anxious person. Like, I thought that was part of my identity. And so I realized that it wasn't part of my identity. It was a layer that I myself was adding, you know, or like an ingredient that I was adding into the recipe um, or maybe a byproduct of the ingredients that I was, like, stirring into my life. Then, you know, the kind of subsequent time after that just became, uh, you know, and it's something I'm still doing, kind of um, thinking about, okay, how can I get back to that place? And, and know, but knowing that it is possible to get back to that place, you know, and um, yeah, I mean, I think just having, um, it's really incredible to have those moments where, you know, you just, it's not that you like don't have worries, but it's just that they sort of pop up and you're like, well, you know, I can't do anything about that. Or, you know, I'll do this about that. And then you just kind of move on, you know, and you're not cycling. Well, worry is such an interesting thing because it really doesn't do anything other than distract you from what you can't control. We're, when you quit this big job where you were doing so much, the books, the conference, the website, the magazine, were you scared? Did you think, who am I without this work? Um, I wasn't scared. I'm always, like, excited to do the next thing. Like, I'm always very, like, no regrets, let's move forward. But what was really challenging, and I think this is challenging anytime you move on from any, you know, I was very deeply identified with that job. You know, I got to do a lot of incredible things. I got to create a lot of incredible things. I worked with an amazing group of people, right? And so all of that was, all that structure was gone. All those relationships were gone. Um, or at least, you know, I still know some of those people, but you know what I'm saying. But um, I think what is so hard is figuring out it takes a while to separate what you want from what that old you wanted, you know. So I would say it took me at least a year or two to kind of pull apart those threads, you know, and to say, oh, this is part of me that still has this, it's like almost like this um, – momentum from the old job, right? Like these were the ideas and the, you know, ambitions and the focus that I had in this job. And it, and it has some momentum that has to run out. You can't just stop it, right? And so you kind of have to let that momentum spool out and then you can kind of like get in there and be like, okay, like this is something like that used to be part of that job, but maybe it wasn't something that I personally aspire to or am interested in and kind of pull those threads apart and start to really figure that out. But I think that's a long, that's a long process. When you left, did you have a sense of what it was you wanted to do next? Or was it going to be something where you were going to allow sort of the universe or your own intentions to manifest slowly? I think at the time I wanted to write a book about careers. I had this whole like massive thing mapped out and I kept kind of trying to do it and then I was like eh, I don't like I just couldn't get into it even though like intellectually I was like I'm gonna do this and so the book that I wrote about email which is still funny to me that I wrote a book about email actually I wrote it as just sort of like an exercise like I was like well, you know I have some stuff to say about this like let me just I'm just gonna like like doing scales or something I was like let me just 
get into this. But it's a very good book for our <laughs> listeners. It's it's a book called Unsubscribe. I actually have some questions about the book that I this might be a good time to yeah, ask. Yeah, no, it is a good book, but it's very specific, right? And I tend to like to have like a much broader lens um, than that book sort of represents. But it's interesting. Like, I, you know, I still say like, oh, it's kind of funny that I wrote that book. But what that book did for me was that um, many, many things. Um, one of them was it got me to do more public speaking and to become comfortable with public speaking, which was, you know, to become comfortable with public speaking is a really magical and wonderful thing, <laughs> um, very useful in life. Um, also removes a lot of anxiety from things. And it also helped me connect with a lot of a lot of people who, you know, kind of would become helpful, you know, kind of later on or play a role later on in my life. So, you know, I think it's you kind of never know what's going to come out of these things. Unsubscribe takes on the age of distraction by focusing on email. Um, and as you told one interviewer, what do we do as creative people living in a world that seems increasingly designed to sabotage the focus necessary to produce great work? How did we get here as creative people so completely overdependent on technology? Well, I think specifically when you're talking about creative people, one of the things that makes us creative is something that um, I read this really funny study that had a good term for it. It was called leaky attention. Mm. And basically what that means is often not being fully focused, but being a little bit permeable, right, to what's going on around you, right? And that's how you know, you notice that little thing maybe that someone else wouldn't notice or you get that little hit of inspiration, right? But it's it's this idea of, or also even if you talk about it in terms of the big five personality traits, it's this idea of openness, right? Of being open to things coming in. But we're really in this in this moment where this idea of openness is deeply problematic for getting any work done, right? Um, and, you know, you just obviously, you know, track it back specifically to things like the open plan office. But I think we live in this moment where we have so many different um, technologies that are pulling us in different directions and also that just allow so many people access to us, right? And so if you're in this open state, it's deeply problematic. I think about it, um, the, the sort of metaphor that I like to use is thinking about having a physical self and a digital self, right? And so you have this physical self, which is, you know, you and your body, and you have 24 hours in a day, and, you know, you have hard kind of limits to your time and your physical energy. But now we have this digital self, right? And this digital self is basically like, let's look at it like a collection of inboxes, right? Your email inbox and your LinkedIn inbox and your Twitter DMs and your Instagram messages and all of these things, right? And those inboxes have an infinite capacity. I never like email you and it's like, Debbie's busy. Like Debbie can't take <laughs> on anymore. Like, and it bounces back to me, right? That doesn't happen. It's just infinite. It goes on forever, right? And so that's what's so problematic about the digital space is it assumes like an infinite capacity. And so that really has shifted the onus of the responsibility of setting boundaries on to us. And I think setting boundaries is, and saying no is difficult for anyone. But I think it's in direct conflict with some of the things that make you 
a really good creative person, which is this openness, right? And so I think a lot of people who are in that space find it incredibly difficult to make a practice of setting boundaries and to make a practice of setting no, but which is something that really is just a requirement of existing in the world today if you actually want to stay focused on the things that matter to you. Combating these issues seem to dovetail perfectly into the need for the new class that you've just launched. It's called Reset. A lot of successful writers often say that they wrote the book that they wanted to read. For this project, did you invent the course that you wish had been around to help you when you needed it? Um, you know, I wouldn't. Hmm. I mean, maybe. <laughs> I wouldn't have put it that way. But yes. I mean, so I think going back to what I was saying earlier, right, about this idea of kind of the self-help industry and even a lot of the advice that we receive being very um, kind of toxic, I think that the the kind of whole idea around Reset was I was super conscious in everything that I did and, and particularly in the language to make it feel like there's nothing wrong with you, right? It's not that there's anything wrong with you. It's just that you maybe need to actually it's all about kind of getting back into yourself and getting back in touch with your body. Um, I think technology really pulls us out of our bodies. And so really like kind of getting back into your body, understanding what the natural rhythms of your energy are so that you can learn how to align your work with that. Um, and also, it's a lot about, like, context. So some of the stuff that I'm talking about now, like, I feel like it's such a comfort to people and such a help to understand, like, oh, this is what the context is, right? Like, the rise of remote working, like, the sort of collapse of any type of hierarchy, right? This idea that I can completely work for myself, okay, great, that's amazing, that's empowering. But what it also means is, like, the onus of responsibility of managing everything is, like, on you now, right? Like, you don't have a manager to help you. You don't have a very structured work environment. You know, you don't have these boundaries that used to be created for you, right, which is liberating. But it also means that then you have to learn how to set those boundaries. And if you're right? a person who has a problem with boundaries or saying no, right. you're doomed. <laughs> well, and I, think, and, and I think that, like, people just feel like it's a personal shortcoming, but when you can kind of provide some context and say, no, 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 like, this is happening to all of us, and, like, here, this is why it's happening to all of us, and, okay, like, here's how we can think about it, and then here's some strategies we use, because a lot of what happens with so much of the um, advice that we get is it's out of context. It's just like, and it's sort of like, okay, if you, like, process your email this way, like, that's going to solve all your problems, and it's sort of like, well, but, like, how does this fit into the big picture, you know? Yeah, I and think also the email is a microcosm <laughs> of all the problems we have with any addictive technological precisely, tool. Precisely, precisely. Yeah, that was actually what I said about unsubscribe is, like, that's why email is interesting to me. Because if you can master your relationship with email, you know, those skills extend to um, to everything else. But so I totally didn't answer your question about Reset, really. Well, why did you decide to, to make this class in the first place? What, what gave you the motivation to do this? Well, so I think, you know, when I was talking about, right, when I left 99U and pulling out those threads, like what matters to me and what matters, you know, what was just part of that job. But when I was, you know, in that job, all I was doing was interviewing people and writing about and studying, like, what makes creative people productive and what helps them build incredible careers. And so I had this incredible, like, font of, 
you know, just sort of knowledge and research from doing all of that work. And so that was kind of the 99U piece. But then I also had this journey that I had gone on, right, to like recover from burnout and integrate these other layers, I think, of like sort of consciousness and thinking about being present and thinking about being more in your body. And also just thinking about like this idea of taking a much more gentle sort of forgiving attitude towards ourselves and how we think about our productivity and how that actually frees things up and helps you kind of let go of anxiety and and helps you actually kind of move through your day in a much more calm and confident and also productive manner. And so it was really like figuring out, okay, how do we fuse these things? How do I take all this stuff that's literally like core research about what makes people productive? And then how do I take this stuff about like, okay, how do we like figure out how to not be anxious and how do we figure out how to be more present and how do we figure out how to be back in our bodies and then take those two things and fuse them together into something that was like, okay, how do we how do we really do this? Like we live in a world where, yeah, we want to be creative and we want to be productive, but like also we don't want to go insane, you know, <laughs> and we don't want to burn out. And so Reset was really like, okay, let's pull these strands together and create something that's going to help people be able to make that transformation that I made. Do you feel that creative people are more apt to burnout than other types of disciplines? Um, I don't know that I would say they're more apt to burn out, but I think they're more apt to have problems setting boundaries. So maybe by that, you know, as an extension of that, um, that might sort of be sort of the natural byproduct. You've said that slowing down makes you more productive. It's not what people want to hear, but it's true. Can you elaborate on how that works? <laughs> well, um, it's what my entire podcast is about, so we might need like 600 hours or something to do it. I think what it is is that when you are constantly speeding along, right, when you're kind of constantly in this rush, a couple of different things happen. You become incredibly reactive, right? And so when you become incredibly reactive, what happens is you begin to be controlled by other people's priorities, right? All of these emails and texts and things that we were talking about that are just, they're going to keep coming into your life, right? What happens when you slow down is that you're able to pull back, right? And you're able to see the big picture and you're able to um, think about your priorities and then you're able to act and make decisions based on those priorities. When you are going fast and you're constantly kind of over busy, you end up having a kind of tunnel vision. And there's this really great book called Scarcity that they talk about this in. Um, it's these, these two researchers, and they looked at two things, actually. They looked at money scarcity and they looked at time scarcity. And when you're living in a state of constant time scarcity or money scarcity, but Time scarcity is probably more relevant to most people listening. You get into this state of tunnel vision. And what happens is it makes you less forward thinking. It makes you less controlled. And it makes you less insightful because you're just all you can do is react, right? All you can do is think about the next thing. But if you think about the skills that you need to be a good creative, right, you need to be forward thinking. You need to be able to be controlled so that you can kind of manage what you need to do, right? And obviously, you need to be insightful 
right? And so all those are all the things that get peeled away when you're kind of zooming forward and just taking things on, taking things off, and, you know, reacting and reacting and reacting. There are so many things that one could talk about in this context, but I think that's the biggest one, is that you just really get into this tunnel vision, reactive mode, and, you know, guess what? Here you are. Technology is happy to tell you what to do with your time, but, like, do you want someone else to tell you what to do with your time, or do you want to tell yourself what to do? You know, do you want to set the priorities? From a cultural anthropological point of view, when did you see busy as a badge come to figure into the way we see the notion of how we spend our time? I mean, I think, I feel like there was probably a moment about like somewhere between 10 and 5 and 10 years ago that I think we were really, and I think it was that first rush, right, of the smartphone, of technology, right? The smartphone is the thing that changed everything, right? This idea that then your work could follow you around, right? That's absolutely changed everything about the way that we work and the way that we feel, you know, because we have this thing that can kind of always bring everyone else into our lives. So I feel like it was really like a couple years after we got smartphones, you know, you're kind of intoxicated. You're like, this is amazing. You know, like I literally remember when I was at Flavorpill watching the video introduction for the first iPhone, you know, and they're like going in and tapping things and zooming. And we were like, whoa, like this is amazing, you know. So I think we got to this point where we were like, yeah, this is busy as good. Like, yeah. And then I think we're really arriving at that point now where we're like, is busy good? Like, I think maybe I'm a little too busy, you know. I frequently um, ask people when I give talks who feels like they work really hard. You know, raise your hand. Almost everyone inevitably raises their hand. They say, okay, how many of you could keep working at this pace for the next five to ten years? All the hands go down almost now. Maybe one or two, you know, like really overachieving types will keep their hand up. And I think we're all feeling that. You know, we're starting to, like, get to that, you know, moment, you know, in, like, the movie sequence where it's kind of like, and you're like, wait, okay, wait, is this working? Like, what's going on? You know, you start to kind of, like, rewind and start to think about, like, reframing things a little bit. And I think we're at that moment where we're like, okay, I know I can't sustain this, but, like, people don't know what to do, you know, because it's also like this is how we live. This is how we live, and and this is who we've become, and we're so immersed in that speed that to sh- to change that or shift that in in any way seems terrifying. In in October 2017, you launched your podcast, Hurry Slowly, and you've done 37 episodes to date. In one episode, you posed a question that I've been obsessed with ever since. You ask, "Who are you without the doing?" And I've been thinking that about that ever since. How long did it take you to find out? And how would you answer that question? So this question came from the shaman who I referred to earlier, right? That was actually on that. I, I, I subsequently, four years later, went back to see her um, this summer. So on the, uh, on the occasion of my 41st birthday. But the first time that I had seen her, when I had that feeling of no anxiety... She had asked me, who are you without the doing? And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> what? And um, probably similar to your reaction about it. And then I, I literally, we did not get to an answer. Like, I was just like, I don't know. But it stuck with me. But by the time that I went back to see her four years later, I had 
forgotten about this question. And, and I was like, oh, here she is with it again. But this time we were actually able to get to the answer. And it's interesting um, because a lot of people have listened to that episode and they're kind of, they have the same reaction. They're kind of like, oh God, I don't know. <laughs> and so there were two things that she told me um, to kind of, that were able to help me think about it. The first was thinking about like, okay, if you weren't, you know, Debbie Melman with all of your career trappings, like if you, you know, were a bus driver or you were a lawyer or you were a waitress in a diner, like what's the thing that would be you know, kind of the essence that you would bring. Like, it didn't doesn't matter what you do, like wherever you were, right? Any type of job. So that's one way to think about it. And the other thing is just thinking about, like, you know, yourself as a, as a small child, right, as this kind of untouched being, right? And, and someone who doesn't have ambitions, right? Like someone who's not trying to achieve anything yet. Like if you can picture yourself, hopefully there was a moment in life, you know, where you – we're in that state where you weren't, like, just thinking about what you wanted to achieve, you know? And what was— So productivity as worth or value. <laughs> yeah. What was your essence then? You know, who were you? And as we were doing this exercise, I had, like, a very um, clear picture. Like, I had a specific image of the specific photo that I have of myself. And I was, like, looking at that person and, like, thinking about that little person. So my answer ended up being lighthearted, like, that that was kind of my— thing that I bring. And you and I know each other and, you know, you know that sort of like being, I think, playful and kind of poking, and, but like trying to like also like I think bring something to light, you know, as kind of a core sort of quality of mine in any kind of situation. And yeah, so that was that was where I ended up with it, which like felt like the right thing for me. But it's something different for everyone. And what's so interesting is when people have followed up with me. I've gotten a number of emails and conversations with people about it. They all seem scared about what they'll find. Um, Well, then it forces you to potentially consider alternative ways of being. Right. But my thought is that what you'll find is actually something quite beautiful, that it's peeling away those layers of kind of anxiety and ambition and achievement and just finding that like little core, you know, that was like what you were like when you were like four or five and you were like that open carefree, trusting little person. So Reset is four weeks. You break down how to reclaim your intention in week one, how to reclaim your energy in week two, how to reclaim your boundaries in week three, and how to reclaim your ideas in week four. Does it help a person understand who they are without all the doing? Well, part of the program of Reset, um, the the core part is these video lessons, right? So there's like 12 video lessons. Um, But they're also accompanied by these meditations. For anyone who the course opened yesterday and for anyone who signed up, actually, they just got the first meditation today. And the meditations are really the piece of it that's actually about kind of like opening up space. The first Meditation, for instance, is actually a lot about self-talk. So how do you talk to yourself in your head? Um, And I give people some sort of specific prompts and things to think about, like, are you talking to yourself in this way? Like, you know, could you maybe think about, you know, just observe that and maybe, you know, think about this? Because I think that so much of this doing and this idea of achieving and this pressure that we put on ourselves, it comes from that 
internal voice, right? There's like this, I think for some of us, there's this almost like kind of hectoring. <laughs> I'm in, not enough. I'm not good enough. I <laughs> internal need to be voice, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. and so it's, so those meditations are very much about, you know, they're not explicitly about self-talk, all of them, the first one is, but it's it's about kind of starting to think about and observe how you are internally driving yourself and how you're framing things. The distinction that I make, and, you know, to go back to what I was talking about earlier with a lot of the sort of productivity advice that we receive, it's all like action-oriented, right? So it's like things you can do or how to do something to get more done, right? <laughs> and I cover that in Reset. Like we talk about actions and you talk about like how to align your energy with the natural rhythms of your body, for instance, or how to align your attention with the well, natural But you actually rhythms. say that productivity is really about what you don't do. It and is that, in a certain that's way. A, that's like a complete revelation for me. <laughs> I, I, my head's yeah. spinning still thinking about that. <laughs> but what I was going to say is you have this one piece, which is actions, and that's what almost everything that we intake is focused on. But then there's also mindset, right? And mindset is – so actions are how you do your work, and mindset is how you frame your work. And how you frame your work impacts your mood, it impacts your motivation, and it impacts how you feel. But we never talk about that part, the mindset part. And so a lot of reset, in particular some of the meditations, are about like how to really shift that mindset because, right, it's really a matter of perspective. Can you give us an example of, of how you can reframe that? Well, so one thing that I've been doing recently is thinking about how much in my head I say, you need to do this, right? In your head constantly. Okay, I got, I need to do this by Friday. You know, I need to do this and this and this. I need to, I need to, I need to, I need to, right? And every time I do that, I try to think about, okay, like, how could I rephrase? Like, and it's like, right, it's it's not like I'm in control. It's like there's a second party here <laughs> right. who's like, you need to do this, right? Which is like, then I'm like, okay, like, I guess I'll do it, right? And it's a very, like, anxiety-producing type of relationship, a type of self-talk. So I think about, well, how could I reframe this so that I'm owning this thing? Is there a way that I could reframe this so that I actually want to do the thing? Or if I really can't reframe it, like, can I let it go? Or should I be saying no to the thing? Or how, you know, and so that's just like a tiny shift. Like every time you hear yourself saying, I need to do this, think about, hmm, okay, well, like, how could I rephrase that so that I'm actually owning that thought and as something that I want to do. And that starts to make you really conscious of the things you really don't want to do. And it also starts to make you conscious of like a more gentle way of framing things so that you can actually get into it, you know? And and it might be that like, you know, to give a very practical example, like let's say I was editing something and when I'm editing, when I'm like, oh, I need to edit this, I'm like going to do it on screen on my computer and I'm kind of going to be hunched over it and feel kind of physically gross and wake up in like a zombie state, you know, a couple hours later, like pick my head up. But if I like print it out and, um, you know, I grab a pen and I go like sit on my sofa and I put like some music on and I'm still doing the editing, but like I'm in this like totally different modality to where I'm like, yeah, like I'm kind of into doing this now, you know? It is just framing, right? It's just like, oh, I decided to do it this way and not that way. And this is the thing that makes me really enjoy the process. Whereas if I'd done it this other way, I wouldn't have enjoyed the process at all. Because I think we're so focused on these outcomes and these achievements, and we forget about the process. But the process is 99% of it, right? And if you don't enjoy the process, then you're just kind of – you're not really – 
you know, there's so much more that you could be doing to really um, be enjoying the work that you're making. You've said that when you're working on something, you ponder how you want your audience to feel. Is there a single universal feeling that you want people to take away from Reset? Comfort, Mm. I think. Comfort in their own skin? Comfort in their own worldview? You know, it's funny because I think when people sign up for it, they're probably not like, that's what I'm going to take away from this is sort of a funny thing. I think, yes, comfort in their own skin, but I think also like comfort like, okay, like I understand why I felt compelled to work this way. And I also like I can see, like I see, you know, what happened with technology. I see what happened with society. Like I see why I was working in that way. But because now I see why that happened, I can see this other avenue over here that I can also take. And it's like, oh, my God, like I could make a right turn. I could take this exit off the highway and like be driving, you know, on the scenic route (laughs) instead (laughs) of on the superhighway that I'm on right now, you know. And so just to have that feeling that you have more options and that you have more control and that there's a different way of doing things. And I think all of that adds up to a feeling of really deep comfort, hopefully. Jocelyn, I have one last question for you that I can't imagine that you're not expecting. Um, At the end of your podcast, Hurry Slowly, you ask every guest a set of questions, among them this one. How do you define creativity in 10 words or less? So you know I have to ask you, Jocelyn, how do you define creativity in 10 words or less? I'm actually, and I'm just saying this to totally own up to where I got this answer. This is an answer that someone gave me, which I think is amazing. Who gave it to you? Kim Chambers. Okay. The amazing marathon swimmer. Um, It's just self-expression. Jocelyn K. Gly, thank you for helping us make better sense of our time in this crazy world. And thank you for joining me today on Design Matters. Thanks. It's been a total pleasure. You can find out more about Jocelyn K. Gly at jkgly, that's spelled G-L-E-I dot com. You can listen to her podcast at hurryslowly.co or on iTunes. And you can register for Reset at reset Course.com. This is the 14th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. For more information about Design Matters or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to DebbieMillman.com. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our Drip Kickstarter community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live interviews, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at d.rip slash Debbie slash Millman. That's d.rip slash Debbie dash Millman. And if you really like this podcast, please write a review in the iTunes store and link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com and recorded at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program in New York City. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Weiland. Generous support for Design Matters Media is provided by Adobe XD and Wix.com.
you're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.